what I would like everybody to keep in mind is that this is still a very statistically rare phenomenon and we can be prepared without being scared. But one thing, and I think this is the best message I could give anybody, please do not ever say it can never happen here because the minute you say it can never happen here is the minute you become complacent. Welcome to Zestful Aging, where I interview thoughtful, inspiring, and creative guests who are changing the way we think about what is possible in our lives, especially as we age. I'm Nicole Christina, psychotherapist and fellow Zestful Ager, and I love to hear from you, my listeners. My website, ZestfulAging.com, makes it easy for you to leave comments or suggestions What do you want to hear more about? What's your favorite episode? And what was most thought-provoking? I really value your feedback. And there's also a place on the website now where you can purchase my guests' books and some of my favorite things to help you age zestfully, like my favorite Nordic walking poles. Our music is provided by Judy Banker, who was a guest on Zestful Aging. Her CD, Buffalo Motel, is out January 2020. Find out more about Judy at judybanker.com. Well, I've got my Jack Russell Sparky right by my side, so let's begin. We have a really thought-provoking and fascinating guest uh, with us today, Jacqueline uh, Schildkraut, I hope, is. am I saying that correctly? You are. Oh, good, is a professor of criminal justice at the State University of New York at Oswego, and she's an expert on mass and school shootings, homicide trends, and the effects of media and crime theories. She's the co-author of Mass Shootings, Myths, Media Myths and Realities, and Columbine, 20 Years Later and Beyond, Lessons from Tragedy. Welcome to the show, Jacqueline. Thank you so much for having me. Really excited to talk to you today. I think people are just really feeling confused and overwhelmed about uh, the shootings that have been going on. And I know we are up on an anniversary of Newtown. Um, And I want to talk to you all about that. But I'm curious first to find out how you first became interested in the subject of homicide. Um, You know, it's weird. I think I've always been sort of morbidly curious. I think a lot of people are. They just don't admit it. And um, I can remember, like, even back in middle school, like, my social studies fair projects were on presidential assassinations. And for some reason, that didn't seem weird. Um, But I can remember really where I was when Columbine happened. It was very much a defining moment for my generation. I had actually graduated Um, the year before Columbine happened. So I was in college at the time, but I can remember, you know, where I was when it happened and when it unfolded very much the same way my mom can tell me where she was the day JFK got assassinated. And um, so it sort of, you know, started to spark for me then um, and became a lot more mindful of it after the 2007 shooting at Virginia Tech. And that was sort of my catalyst to go back to school, figure my life out and make contributions in a meaningful way. Mm-hmm. And so when you started getting interested in homicide and some of these mass tragedies, were you thinking that you wanted to try to understand uh, the 
perpetrator's mindset because you're also you're doing quite a bit of work about how this all gets understood by the public based on some of how the media portrays it. Where where did where was your focus uh, when you first started? My focus was definitely on how the media was portraying these events. Um, you know, they, they are statistically rare in the context of the greater crime picture, but they're also what gets the most attention. And, you know, throughout the years, I can remember sitting here watching television and, you know, knowing the things that are factually correct and incorrect and just seeing so much misinformation being put out time and time again. And, you know, that has certain consequences for the way the public understands them, the way our politicians respond to them, and the way other people view them that want to go out and do them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was really fascinated when I read some of your work talking about, and I had never thought about this, even as a psychotherapist, how this gets talked about and presented. And one of the things that you pointed out is, is this, are we paying attention mostly to the victims or are we paying most of our attention to the shooter? And that makes a big difference. Absolutely. And historically, it's always been the focus on the shooter. Um, You know, we're 20 years after Columbine, and there are certain victims that got more coverage than others. Um, Certainly Dave Sanders, who was an absolute hero that day, and honestly saved so many kids' lives that day, just by alerting them to what was going on. Absolutely, he deserves to be talked about. Um, But then you look at other victims like Kyle Velasquez, and most people don't even know about Kyle. And, you know, we talk about victims, you know, as these numbers, like they're one of 13 or one of 26 or one of 17 or one of 58. But there's so much more than that. They're people. They had lives. They have families. They had legacies. And we don't talk about that enough. So you're interested in finding out why certain victims get more um, uh, honor, maybe is the word, than others. Is that part of your curiosity? I mean, certainly, you know, just making sure that the victims are highlighted, period, um, is is definitely a priority. There has been great research done by actually a colleague of mine, Glenn Mushert, who actually looked at the differences in the victims of Columbine and how they were portrayed vastly differently. And some of that has to do with the narratives that emerge out of the shooting, for instance, with Cassie Bernal and the idea that she said yes when the shooters asked if she believed in God um, or Dave Sanders, again, in his the heroism that he displayed. Um, those are both, you know, stories that very much make for news and television. And when those same stories don't come out about every victim, it makes it harder to highlight them. So let's talk a little bit about the media. And um, what is driving the media? What is influencing the media to tell a story about one victim in one way, and another victim in another way? You know, I think it's just all generally the the patterns of media reporting. Um, You know, certainly there are media scholars out there much more prolific at this than I am. But at the end of the day, the media is a business. And so it's about what stories are going to get viewers tuning in, what stories are going to keep them tuning in, because at the end of the day, viewers equal advertising dollars. And so I think it's about what's really going to capture the attention. And I think historically, that's also why there's been more focus on the shooters than the victims because there's a belief out that if we can profile a mass shooter, we can prevent the next tragedy. And unfortunately, that's not a realistic belief. 
Yes, I want to talk more about that. I was just going to say I ha- I heard somewhere, and I'm sure you've heard this, if it bleeds, it leads. The yes. idea of in journalism, the more gory, grotesque, and horrifying, the more the more money you're going to make selling, you know, whatever it is, newspapers or, or, or that. Um, so talk a little bit about profiling, because I think that's what we're all hoping to understand. How can we address this? How can we, how can we figure out the person who's going to be a mass shooter and um, intercept this before it happens again? Well, the reality is is that there is no profile of a mass shooter, um, and attempts to do that are basically over-predicting. So it's saying, for instance, you know, there's a common belief that, like, young white males are mass shooters. And so what ends up happening is anybody who's a young white male, you know, is sort of being tagged as a potential shooter. The reality is is that almost 100% of the time, shooters will tell you in advance that they're going to do this. They'll tell somebody. It's this idea of what's called leakage. Um, Whether they post it on social media, whether they tell their friends, in some way or another, they tell somebody that they're going to do it. So identifying those types of signals is far more fruitful than trying to say mass shooters look a certain way. Mm -hmm. I see. I see. And in terms of profiling, I mean, as, as I said earlier, were heard throughout the world. And I think many countries wonder about why the United States seems to have these mass shootings. What are your thoughts about culture um, being in America and, and having these mass shootings? You know, I think, sadly, our, our nation has accepted these events as part of our culture. Um, You know, we don't see them in other countries to the frequency that we see them here. And, you know, what I've seen even just anecdotally in comments on social media, you know, I can remember, I guess it was about two years ago when the YouTube shooting happened. um, And I was watching it unfold kind of on Facebook Live. Um, Not that the shooter was on Facebook Live, but it was airing on some news station on Facebook. And I can remember in the comments, and this really stuck with me, that someone said, well, it's been three weeks since we had a shooting. We just should have expected it. And I think having that that sort of resolution to this is just who we are, I think makes it so people don't have this longstanding conversation about it. You know, where it goes from not one more to add another one onto the list. And for those of us who are trying to learn about them and to understand them and to work towards prevention, that that sort of mentality is really kind of harmful because it's saying we're just only going to talk about it the minute it happens and not for, you know, the long term. You know, we look at how the media covers them. Um, you know, when a shooting first happens, it's like all this really intensive coverage and a day, two days, maybe a week later, it's over and everybody moves on. But the communities don't move on. The people who have been impacted don't move on and the people who study it don't move on. And one thing that I found fascinating in your writing is that there's not a lot of collaboration between scholars like yourself and the media and law enforcement and all of the interested parties. There's not sort of a, a sharing or a, 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 a any kind of collaboration that could be very helpful. 
Um, I think it depends on sort of what avenue that you're looking at and um, sort of who's doing what work. So, for instance, I have done work with the No Notoriety Campaign, which was started by Tom and Karen Teeves after their son Alex was murdered in the um, Aurora, Colorado theater shooting. And their campaign has been you know, slowly gaining momentum. It is the policy of people like Anderson Cooper and Nine News out in Denver not to say the shooter's name excessively, excessively, not to show their picture excessively, and to really kind of refocus that. We've seen more and more law enforcement agencies that are picking this up. Um, I do work with law enforcement agencies. I work with school districts. I work with a lot of different people. So I think it's just more about the avenues that are being um, explored and whether that collaboration really presents itself. I see. And I guess maybe I should have been more clear. I think what you were saying and, and, and what I was reading is that the media doesn't maybe collaborate with some of the scholars. Well, I think that there's always an opportunity for everybody across the board, no matter what your position is, no matter where you are vested in as a stakeholder, there's always opportunity for all of us to do more and to work together. Because, you know, one thing that really guides my research, um, and if you notice, I don't, I don't solely author a lot of publications, is because I don't believe I have all the answers, and I believe that multiple viewpoints are the way to get things done. And so I think that collaboration really is the key, especially since we're talking about a problem that is so multifaceted. I see. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, back to no notoriety, could you tell us a little bit about why that's important Absolutely. You know, um, this isn't, you know, an, the No Notoriety Campaign, it's not an attack on the First Amendment. It's a call for responsible journalism. And the reason why it's so important is you don't have to take my word for it as a researcher. You don't have to take Tom and Karen's word for it as the founder of this camp, founders of this campaign. You have shooters who are going out and telling you that they want their name in lights. They're mm. telling you, we want to be famous. The Columbine shooters sat in their basement and said they wanted to know whether it was going to be Steven Spielberg or Quentin Tarantino that told their story. The Parkland shooter, before he went to school, made a video about how everybody was going to know his name. So mm. we have people who are telling us this is what they're what they want and why they're doing this. Mm -hmm. And so continuing to give them that attention and that notoriety is number one, rewarding them for killing people. And number two, it's saying to other like minded individuals, if you want to be famous, this is how you do it. Mm -hmm. it do you think that um, the internet has contributed to some of the increase in the shootings? It's really hard to say. Um, I think the internet certainly makes it easier to spread information and more importantly spread misinformation because there's no gatekeeping. Um, but it, it's very difficult if at all possible to mm -hmm. say why you know what what role the media or sorry what role the internet has in all that mm -hmm. mm. I see so what kind of impact are you hoping to make what is your goal with your work and your research you know I um I grew up in the Parkland area and I went to college in Orlando which is where the Pulse shooting was in 2016. So I am effectively the product of two communities that have experienced mass tragedy. And at this stage in my career, it's about honoring my communities um, in a way that is befitting of the victims and those that we've lost. But also I just try to save 
or to empower people with skills to save their lives if they're ever faced with a similar tragedy. Um, you know, the, the kids in Parkland, they had no training whatsoever on how to respond. And I I firmly believe that if they had, then a number of them would have gone home that day who didn't. Um, so, you know, I may never know what impact I'm making or how many lives I save, but if I save even one, it's all worth it. Maybe you can tell us um, some things that if, God forbid, we're ever in this position, what do you recommend as tips to stay safe? Well, you know, one of the most important things to think about is that your environment is going to dictate what you can do. So where you are is going to be a big factor in how you respond. So for instance, I work with a lot of schools and in schools or in any situation, but mainly schools, we know that door locks are proven time barriers in the sense that there's only been four shootings where anybody has been killed behind a locked door. And in none of those instances was it because the door lock failed. Uh, perpetrators in these situations, they're looking for easy targets, people that are out in the open, people that they don't have to work for, especially because they don't have a lot of time to do what they're going to do. So getting behind a locked door is priority one. If you are able to like in a school or a workplace setting, if you're someplace like a Walmart or a concert or an open space, that's not possible. So then it becomes, what does your environment dictate that you can do? In that case, it's probably running and getting away from the scene as quickly as possible or finding a location within that space that's away from the shooter that gives you an advantage to know where you can go and what you can do and to be able to make decisions. You know, as I always tell students when I work with them, there's 9,999 things that can happen in a blink of an eye on one of these shootings. I can't predict them all, but being aware of what's going on around you and what you have to work with is really important. Okay. Now, I mean, do you recommend that kids... Uh, when they go to concerts or malls or you mentioned Walmart, look around and kind of suss out, you know, what's my environment looking like? Is that where we are at this point where we go in and we, it used to be, you know, where's the closest exit? Right. Well, and I think that um, that's just basic situational awareness. You should always know where your exits are in case there's a fire or something else happens. Maybe there's a medical emergency and you need to get out of wherever you are. I think that's just standard. I don't think that we have to like live in fear where we're always looking over our shoulder, but I think being situationally aware of what's going on around you is not a bad thing. Um, you know, so I always kind of use the mantra, quick scan, set a plan, like, okay, if I needed to get out of here, where's my closest exit? But I don't spend a lot of time thinking about it. I'm just aware of my surroundings. You know, it occurs to me, and I haven't spent a lot of time thinking about this, but I'm wondering if there's confusion that many kids have never heard a gun go off. And I'm, you know, I'm wondering if they even know it's a gun and that they, you know, lose some time in running away because they may think it's something else. Maybe it's fireworks. 
Well, I think, uh, you know, first of all, I will say that I had an opportunity to meet with one of our local vendors who um, produces some amazing ballistics film and ballistics glass um, that it's a really great product. And in their facilities, they actually have a a shooting range. And so um, we were testing their products while I was visiting. Uh, what was really interesting to me is we actually fired off an AR-15 in a very small space. And I don't think you need to be exposed to it to know what it is. Um, mm-hmm. It's a sound like I've never heard. It is an experience like I've never heard because it's not just the sound. Um, especially when you're in an enclosed space, there's reverberations off your cl- Like your clothes are vibrating mm. and other things. So I don't think you need to be exposed to it to know what it is. Um, also, when you're in a building versus like outside, I think that there's very little you can confuse that sound with. But I, I also see. don't think that you have to expose children to those sounds to help prepare them. Hey, Sesfilagers. Last year, I attended the International Federation on Aging's Global Conference in Toronto, and they've announced the 15th Global Conference on Aging for Niagara Falls, Ontario, from November 1st through 3rd, 2020. Zestful Aging Podcast is a proud partner for this conference, and I encourage you to all consider attending. The conference features prominent experts presenting and discussing critical issues within the field of aging. So head on over to ifa2020.org to learn more. And I hope to see you in Niagara Falls in November. So we have this uh, situation, and and I know uh, it's been out there a little bit for people to think about. And as a therapist, I think about it, you know, how young do you start training kids that, you know, the, the, you need to run away, you need to have situational awareness. Um, the, these are some things that you should do in a school shooting. I mean, at what point are we traumatizing these young children and how do we do it in a way that uh, doesn't frighten them and give them anxiety disorders um, just from hearing the, you know, the training. Well, so, and I'm actually glad you brought that up because this is something I've been working on for the last year and a half. Um, So, you know, there's a couple of things I would say to that. First of all, I think that the anxiety in the room about lockdown drills or active shooter training It's not the children, it's the adults. And I say that with all due respect because kids today have never known a world without active shooter drills. All of the adults in the room knew a time before Columbine when this was not the norm. And so the mentality that's changing is not the kids because there's just never needed to be different. It's the adults in the room. Now, certainly there are horror stories out there of teachers being lined up and shot with pellet guns or, you know, mocking kids up in fake blood and laying them down like crisis actors or shooting um, off simulation, which is uh, simulated ammunition to expose them to the sound of gunfires. And, um, you know, certainly those are the stories that are getting a bad rap. But I spent a year and a half in the school district here in New York, fifth largest district, 21,000 students, 4,300 employees, faculty, staff, and administrators. And we didn't have that same issue. Um, You know, we empowered kids to understand how to respond in these situations through practice, not through traumatization. And so I think that, 
you know, this is really where this conversation needs to shift is, like you said, how do we do this in a way that is healthy, that is teaching them without traumatizing them? Mm-hmm. So if you were a, a policymaker, what would you like to see in the United States in terms of preparing our kids? Um you know, I think that we definitely need more evidence-based policies. Um, we look at like the school security market right now, and it's $3 billion a year that's being spent on target hardening and school safety and everything else, and virtually none of it has any evidence behind it. So you look at things like bulletproof backpacks, which are, you know, the same transports that I used in, in high school with, you know, made out of bulletproof or ballistics material, and they're selling for, you know, 150 to $500 a piece. But there's no evidence to suggest that those are going to do what they're going to do. And then there's also the assumption that kids are going to be wearing backpacks all day or mm. they're going to be shot right in the back, you know, right mm. in the backpack region. Mm. And so we're spending all of this money when we have other issues in schools like mental health or the need for school lunches. And I just think we need more evidence. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And the evidence would be, um, how, how would that happen? I mean, w- what would that look like? Um, you know, there's so many different products and, and policies and procedures out there. Um, it would be a heavy lift and it would require a lot of researchers. But I think really, you know, testing the effectiveness, there's a um, specific protocol. It's called the Standard Response Protocol from the I Love You Guys Foundation which was started after the 2006 shooting at Platte Canyon High School. And um, it happens to mirror what our state requires us to do. So that's actually the protocol that I decided to go with because it was the best fit for what we needed to do. And so now we actually have a multitude of evidence to say this is the impact that this program and training and drills has on feelings of safety, on feelings of preparedness, on the effectiveness of lockdowns. It can be done, but people have to be willing to do the heavy lifting. Mm-hmm. And, and funded, right? Yes. It has to be funded. Definitely uh-huh. has to be funded. <laughs> so um, I'm also interested in how it is for you to be reading about this, training about it, teaching about it. And I think about secondary trauma as a, as a mm-hmm. therapist. I mean, you know the details more than any of us. So what's it like for you to be thinking about homicide for a lot of your day? Um, you know, I, I used to think I was really good at compartmentalizing it. And then Pulse happened and it sort of cracked that ability for me. And then when Parkland happened, it blew it wide open. I was diagnosed with PTSD last year, um, actually very severe PTSD. Um, I have gone through my own trauma journey in respects to what I've seen, what I've been exposed to, what I know, what I deal with on a daily basis. I've been very, very fortunate in that not only do I have amazing resources available to me through my trauma counselor and others, but through my work, I have actually found a place among survivors of mass shootings, and I found a group of people that validate my experiences in ways that most other people can't. And so like one of the people that has been completely instrumental in my journey is Frank DeAngelis, who was Columbine's principal on the day of the shooting. And 
He has been just such an amazing person for me to talk to, to recognize when I wasn't okay, even when I thought it was. Um, and I'm honestly forever indebted to him. Mm-hmm. So you've really joined with folks who had hands-on experience that you you're accepted and you're part of this group Mm -hmm. who has experienced it because you're experiencing it and re-experiencing it your every single day and it's always so interesting to me because like when I'll talk to Frank he'll say you know I just don't know how you do it because you're exposed to way more than we ever were you know more than we ever have been And I always say to him, but Frank, your student shot at you. And he Mm -hmm. says, but that was one day. He goes, you deal with it every day. And so, you know, like I said, having somebody that can validate your experiences, who when you feel like everything seems so weird or unfamiliar, you know, just gets it. I And Frank's not the only one. I have a number of friends from Columbine and Sandy Hook and Virginia Tech and Aurora and Pulse and all of these different communities that really have just embraced me and given me a place to make sense of it all. And at any point, did you think that maybe it was time to leave this field because it was hard to address your own PTSD while you were being re-traumatized? No. um, You know, I think, honestly, I'm a very stubborn person. Um, (laughs) So... (laughs) There's, I'm not going to lie, there's a level of guilt that I struggle with every day because you try so hard to help so many people and when it destroys, and I mean destroys everything that you've ever known as a child, um, you know, I was home in Parkland for the two-month anniversary and I was standing in front of that building and it looks exactly the same as it ever did minus all of the, you know, MST strong posters everywhere. But it was the most unfamiliar place I'd ever been. And when something like that is just shattered, you can't help but feel guilty. Like you try to save everybody, but you couldn't save your own home. And I know that that wasn't my job, Mm. but it doesn't make it any easier. Mm -hmm. And so as long as these are still happening, as long as people are still not going home to their families, and as long as communities are being shattered, then I have a job to do and I'm not going to quit no matter what. So you have a real personal mission to save people mm-hmm. from from violence. I try. Tell us a little bit about how the card writing project came about. So right after the Las Vegas shooting, I was just on Facebook, and I happened to come across a post from um, a woman named Tanya, who was also a survivor of the um, Las Vegas shooting. And she had connected with a number of the families and was doing this project called 58 Benefits of Gratitude, where you could basically adopt a family um, and sponsor them with holiday presents just to try and give back, give them a little something that year. And so I adopted, quote unquote adopted, um, these three boys, Caden, Braxton, and Grayson, whose mom, Nasa Tonks, was killed in the shooting and, you know, brought Christmas presents and everything. And around that time, it was the end of our semester, and college students are always looking for ways to bump their grade. (laughs) So I said, listen, you know, if you want to do something, I'd rather 
give you something meaningful to do so you can write cards to these three boys. And so it started like that. And then I found out there was about three dozen other kids. And so I put out a few posts on social media, didn't think much of it. And the next thing I knew, we had collected a little over 2,000 cards, Mm -hmm. which I thought was incredible because my house looked like the Target's card section. And I thought thought it was so cool. Um, We did Valentine's Day last year right before Parkland and got another like 1,300 and change. Then everybody wanted to do another holiday. And I was like, seriously, wait till Christmas. (laughs) You got to stop. It's a lot of work. Um, Last Christmas... We got about 9,500 cards, which was oh amazing. Oh, my goodness. So what's the logistics of this? You put it out, and it was on the local news. Mm-hmm. You put it out, and you get the cards. They're sent to you, and then you deliver them to your three adoptive No, kids? so we actually have 74 children and families between Las Vegas, Parkland, and Aurora that we give the cards to. We also have, I think we're up to... 12 communities that we're sending more general cards to like to a special friend or to a special someone we're still today's our last day of collection and i just had about 30 packages show up at my door so we are going to blow past last year's numbers and your hope is what what is it that you're hoping to do with these gestures of kindness for these uh, victims or victims families you know it just These are people who have seen the absolute worst that humanity has to offer. And I think we're giving them a piece of the good back. And, you know, I don't hear from all of the families, but I do hear from a couple of them. And they always tell me just how much it helps and how much it makes them feel better. And, you know, that they love hearing how so many people love them. And we also have survivors participate as well who maybe weren't physically injured but were present and have emotional trauma. And they always talk about how it helps them, you know, give back and find an outlet. Almost has a spiritual feel. It's just so cool to see everybody come together and choose something that's bigger than all of us. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it, it really does take a village. We have over, oh, gosh, hundreds of contributors. We're going to have more than 10,000 cards this year. It's just, it's just incredible. And there's this way that there's different angles that you're trying to address the pain and suffering, you know, either by your scholarly research, trying to uh, participate in evidence-based work that says, no, this isn't helpful. Maybe the backpacks aren't helpful, Hmm. but this is going in to teach kids about situational awareness. And now this, this other angle, which is trying to lend some help in their healing. I just, like I said, it's just such a multifaceted, uh, multifaceted problem. And really, any way that I can give back, I absolutely will. Mm-hmm. This is your life. It is. It's your life's mission. Is there anything that you'd like to tell parents or grandparents who are listening that, you know, you, you, uh, your book was about uh, myths and realities. Is there anything that you think people should know that maybe they um, hadn't gotten from media coverage or, um, you know, their neighbors talking about mass shooting? 
You know, I think one of the, the biggest misconceptions and part of this has to do with the fact that we just don't have a national definition or a national um, database or anything on these events. I will start by saying that the loss of one life is absolutely one too many, whether it's to a mass shooting or to gun violence in general. And I can't imagine, I have three dogs, I can't imagine what it's like to be a parent this day and age and worry about sending your children to school and not knowing if they're coming home in one piece or in a body bag. I I just can't, my heart breaks even thinking about it. But what I would like everybody to keep in mind is that this is still a very statistically rare phenomenon and we can be prepared without being scared. But one thing and I think this is the best message I could give anybody. Please do not ever say it can never happen here. Because the minute you say it can never happen here is the minute you become complacent. Mm -hmm. There are steps that we can take to ensure our children are safe, to ensure our schools are safe, to ensure everybody comes home. But we can't be complacent, not in this day and age. And if you had ever asked me if I thought this was going to happen in the area I grew up in, I would have told you no way on this planet. You know, the worst thing that we ever did as kids was, sorry, mom, we stole money from our parents' wallets and we drove, rode our bikes to McDonald's. That's the worst <laughs> thing we did as kids. Mm-hmm. We had a very idyllic childhood. Mm-hmm. And last year, the most heartbreaking thing to ever come out of my mouth was somebody asked me what it was like growing up there. And I said, probably like Littleton before Columbine. Mm-hmm. You just can't say it can never happen here because it just... It breeds complacency and we, it might never happen, but you can't pretend that it doesn't exist. And that would be my message. Mm-hmm. So kind of one foot in both camp where, you know, it's rare and yet you have to also be careful and be, um, be vigilant. Be vigilant. Well, and you know, the example I always give to people, and this is great for anybody that's listening from a coastal town that will completely understand this. Growing up in Florida, we had hurricanes. I live in New York now. We have snow, no hurricanes. But in Florida, we always had hurricanes. And I talk about preparedness like a can of SpaghettiOs. And it's not to sound silly or to make light of it. But when a hurricane is coming, you have to buy non-perishable food. And so as kids... Your parents would always get you SpaghettiOs because you were, as a child, you'll eat anything out of a can. (laughs) But what ends up happening is that natural disasters, very much like man-made disasters, do everything but what they're supposed to do. So a hurricane, you know, they'll tell you it's coming and it's going to hit you in five days and whatever. And it will go north, it'll go south, it'll turn around, it'll dissipate, it'll do everything but what it's predicted to do. But I will tell you, it is much better to have that can of SpaghettiOs and not need it than Mm. need it and not have it. And that's what I talk about with preparedness. It's Mm -hmm. not to make light of it. It's to say we should hopefully never need it, but we don't want to be caught without it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that sounds really wise, really helpful. Um, Jacqueline, you uh, wrote a book that I think our um, our audience would be interested in, The Media Myths and Realities. Um, where can people find out more about your work? 
Um, all of my books are actually available through Amazon as well mm-hmm. as the publisher's website. Mm-hmm. Um, my website is just www.jacquelineshultkraut.com. It contains um, synopsises of my books, of my research mm-hmm. articles. People can contact me. I'm happy to provide complimentary copies of my research articles if they're interested. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That sounds wonderful. And I'll put that up um, on my uh, website as well. Did you want to mention you said there was someone you were working with or you knew of who who really did some excellent preventative work or has products in New York that you thought highly of? Oh, um, the Armored One Company, um, they mm-hmm. are based also out of Syracuse, New York, and uh-huh. their glass products are amazing. Um, okay. I was very impressed. I mean, we shot a lot of guns at them um and the way that they held up was really quite amazing impressive okay so i'll um i'll go ahead and put that link in the show notes so appreciate you spending the time uh speaking with me today it's a hard thing to talk about but certainly it's on people's minds and i really appreciate your advice and your perspective thank you so much for allowing me the opportunity to share it Thank you so much for joining us on Zestful Aging. If you like the podcast, please share it with some of your friends. I love to hear from my listeners. Send me an email at NicoleChristina.com. In this phase of our lives, we're more aware that our time is precious, and we certainly don't want to waste it taking care of stuff that we no longer need, left over from a life that we are no longer living. We know we would feel better with less clutter and more open space, but we don't know how to get there. If this sounds familiar, I'd love you to check out the online course I've developed with professional organizer and designer, Carrie Luteran. This course is different than others you may have tried because we give you clear steps to deal with the clutter and tools to help you face the overwhelm and feelings that come up when you're going through your clutter. It's practical and realistic, and the lessons are short and punchy and very manageable, but it has the power to change your life. We all deserve to live in a peaceful home without the chaos of too much stuff. Find out more at NicoleChristina.com. And stay tuned next week for another interview with a fascinating and inspiring guest.